Hello, everyone, and welcome back to From the Front Row. My name is Lauren Lavin, and I'm the host of today's episode with Peggy Shepard. Peggy Shepard is a co-founder and executive director of We Act for Environmental Justice. Peggy Shepard was visiting the University of Iowa College of Public Health in order to receive the Hansen Award for all of the work that she's done in environmental justice. In addition to all of the work and being executive director of WE Act, she has been named co-chair of the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council and the chair of the New York City Environmental Justice Advisory Board. She was also the first female chair of the National Environmental Justice Advisory Council to the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. She also serves on the executive committee of the National Black Environmental Justice Network and on the board of advisors of the Columbia Mailman School of Public Health. She's received broad recognition for all of her work in environmental justice, and we are honored to have her on the podcast today to talk about these topics. Peggy Shepard, welcome to From the Front Row. Hi, I'm Peggy Shepard. I'm executive director and co-founder of We Act for Environmental Justice. We are a community-based organization based in Harlem in New York City. And we have a federal policy office in Washington, D.C. And we are an organization that works to organize the most affected people by environmental policy to engage in helping to develop more sustainable policies to, in order to, to really create healthy, sustainable communities. Yeah. And when did you start WE ACT? We are now celebrating our 35th year. Wow. We got started back in 19... For the first six years, we were an all-volunteer organization working on a number of issues. One was a sewage treatment plant that had been recently constructed as a part of the Clean Water Act to ensure that every time you flushed a toilet, it no longer went into the river. That seems important. <laughs> That's pretty important. So the federal government told New York City, you've got to create a sewage treatment plant. That's got to stop. That didn't happen until 1988 or after that? That's correct. Oh, my gosh. That's crazy. Okay. Mind blown. So, yeah, the plant was actually constructed in 1986 and began operating and we began organizing the community because right away the people who lived right across the street from the plant on on Riverside Drive were complaining about odors and about emissions that were creating asthma attacks for some of their children. Absolutely. So we were able to organize for about six years against a mayor who really did not like uptown communities, Mm. did not work with elected officials of color. And so he stonewalled us and said, oh, there's nothing wrong. You must be imagining it. And so we had a very credible state senator who was working with us. And he finally said to the mayor, do you really think that I am not telling you the truth? I just came from that area, and it's a real problem. So once Mayor Koch got out of office and David Dinkins, the first black mayor of New York City, came into office, Dinkins said, there's a problem and we're going to fix it. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how we got started. But 
Even though David Dinkins was the friend of the progressive community, we knew that, you know, you can't place all of your community sustainability on the uh, not the, uh, on the whims and good graces of one person. Yeah. And so we sued the city. Wow. And we sued our wonderful mayor to ensure that we had a mandate for what should happen at that sewage treatment plant. And so once he got into office, we found out that the previous mayor had not been telling the truth. There was no odor control equipment in the sewage plant, which was the closest to people's homes of all of the 14 sewage plants in New York City. Wow. This is literally in the Hudson River, across the street, yeah, literally across the street from people's homes. Oh my gosh. And so after you sued, what happened? After we sued, on the last day of the Dinkins administration, we got a settlement of our lawsuit for $1.1 million environmental benefits fund for West Harlem, and he committed $55 million to fix what was a brand new plant. And this was so significant that this was a five-column headline above the fold in the New York Times. Oh my goodness. And what year was this? This was 1993. Wow. So you guys started off with a bang. We started off with a bang. And, you know, once you... Once you get acclimated to understanding environmental justice, you start looking around the community very differently. And so then we realize, my God, we're housing over one third of the largest diesel bus fleet in the country in our neighborhoods. So out of all of the six uh, bus depots in Manhattan at the time, all five were uptown. Wow. And so you've got diesel buses, and we know that diesel is a, carcin- is, is a carcinogen. It's classified by the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. And we know that it fuels the asthma epidemic. And so you've got these buses idling outside of schools, parks, people's homes. And so we filed a Title VI civil rights complaint against the Metropolitan Transit Authority. This was during the Reagan administration, Mm -hmm. so it didn't go anywhere, but it meant that the Metropolitan Transit Authority, because of that, began meeting with us monthly. Wow. And this is an authority. You know, authorities are kind of above the usual city agency, and they don't usually deal with community. Right. And so this was very unusual, and we began meeting with them on a weekly basis. Uh, on a monthly basis. And then what happened is that the transit workers began to come to our office to give us the backstory on what was actually going on. There was more to the story? There was more to the story because if you could imagine that sitting on a bus, being outside the tailpipe, you're breathing in all of this particulate matter, Mm -hmm. what we found was that the people, workers in the depots, fixing the buses, are exposed inside a closed building to all of this diesel. So they were concerned 
And we also found out in a Daily News article that many of the bus drivers die within five years of retiring. And we again believe that the contribution of fine particulate matter to whatever else they might be exposed to might be a, a huge contributor to that to that premature death. Yeah, absolutely. I think we can all like conjure up the smell of like a diesel bus going by and knowing that how many depots did you say were in just that neighborhood area? Five? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can't imagine if that was constantly running through your neighborhood, what that would do breathing that in constantly. Exactly. And that's another reason why you see so much money going out for school buses. The EPA has been proposed, you know, uh, asking for proposals for probably 10 to 15 years now, but now there's a really big push on converting school buses to electric. Really? Because school buses are some of the dirtiest vehicles on the road. School buses are generally older. They're generally operated by mom and pop companies. And, you know, buses kind of have a 10 to 20 year life. And so you've got a dirty bus and it's on its last legs and it's still operating. And so what we found is that it is more um, dangerous for a child sitting in the bus than standing outside the bus at the tailpipe. Because of the way the engines on these buses are made, you find that the diesel fumes are coming into the cabin of the bus. Mm -hmm. So again, school buses... Um, are big, big priority to to switch to electric right now. Yeah. Now that you say that, I'm just thinking about like the, even the smell of a school bus, like inside it, that makes a lot of sense with, yeah, just even my own personal experience. And I didn't even have to ride on a school bus all that often, so I can't imagine having to do that for maybe hours a day. And then you're thinking about the youngest kids, kindergartners, elementary school, as they're still growing. And, you know, they're they're still developing their neurological capabilities. You know, their whole biology is still developing. And at that time, they're being exposed to potential carcinogens. Yeah. So at such a foundational time in their life. Exactly. What did you guys do to address the bus situation that was happening within those neighborhoods? So, again, uh, by filing the civil rights suit, which was not upheld, it, it, again, gave us um, uh, an opportunity to develop a relationship with the Metropolitan Transit Authority. I think the MTA then began to realize that they were in more, you know, they used to say, we're in the business of moving people. But no, transportation-related air pollution is quite significant. And so I think they began to understand that because we worked with the Columbia School of Public Health. They had a study that we were part of. They had a Columbia Children's Environmental Health Center. And that center was focused on a cohort of 720 pregnant women from Harlem and the South Bronx who wore backpack air monitors during their pregnancy so that we could understand the impact of diesel emissions on them and the developing fetus, and then on the children once they have been born, 
we have followed the children of this cohort of 720 women for now 22 years. That is a massive undertaking. A massive undertaking. Not my organization, but the Columbia School. But we were the community partner for that study. And that study gave us the data to hit the MTA day after day. It took us 18 years of having the data, organizing, advocating to get finally get the, the MTA to invest in hybrids, electric, now electric buses, and to really begin to redevelop the bus depots so that every bus is now inside the depot instead of idling outside on the streets. And actually, a couple of the depots have been closed. Wow. What a story of resilience and determination. 18 years. And you kept at it. And we have the data from a well-established university with world-renowned researchers. Yeah, I think that kind of shows like how resistant, I don't know if it's government agencies or just even even private organizations are to change, even when the data is in your hand and you need advocacy and lots of it in order to promote some of that change that needs to happen. Well, you know, also, you really have to understand the business to a certain degree as well. For instance, a bus is on the road for up to 16, 20 years. So when you suddenly say you've got to convert every bus, they can't really go out and throw out all those buses and buy all new ones. These buses are hundreds of thousands of dollars. So so I, I do have an understanding of that, but you've got to get that trend, you've got to push that trend along because it can take many, many years for a whole fleet to transform. I'm going to have you back up just a little bit and explain the concept of environmental justice because you've used that word and I don't know if all of our listeners are familiar with that. So hundreds of grassroots groups that came together in 1991 at a summit in Washington, D.C. These were grassroots groups around the country all working on issues of environmental degradation and thinking they were all alone. So I had already been working on this issue, as I've explained, in New York. I get to this meeting in Washington, D.C., and there's 300 other people who are doing the same work. I thought we were the only one. And then we came together, we developed principles of environmental justice, and I would urge everyone to Google 17 Principles of Environmental Justice and read them because they're very salient today. And so the movement came together to address the disproportionate amount of pollution going into communities of color, low-income communities, and indigenous communities. Mm -hmm. Because we understood that that was the common thread that, that that brought us all together, that all of our communities were dumping grounds for pollution. And that in many cases, industry were intentionally siting facilities in those communities because we were less informed, we were less powerful in terms of voting, and often land is cheaper in some of our communities. And so we really came together in a national environmental justice movement to address this disproportionate impact of pollution that was really scarring the health 
and the landscapes of our communities. Do you have any other examples of where this has happened in the U.S. besides in New York City? All over the country. So New Jersey has the most Superfund sites in the country. Mm-hmm. The Gulf Coast is overrun with petrochemical oil companies, plastics manufacturers. All of these companies have situated themselves in the Gulf Coast. In Texas, you've got Texas, San Diego, New Jersey. You have ports where ships are using diesel fuel and have trucks coming in and out to haul away cargo. So people are living literally next door to those kinds of facilities. In California and in Texas, there are no zoning. So a industrial facility can be next door to your your backyard where your kid is playing. Yeah, that would that's scary. That's scary. California a cement factory grinding out cement oh. dust can be right next door to your home because there's no zoning. Wow. And that's that's physical particulate matter that they can probably even see. Oh, and there's yeah. still no law against it. Yes. Wow. I had also, I think I've heard, and this is maybe particularly relevant to the Midwest farming area, that commercially or commercial agricultural farming operations are really big. And so they have massive amounts of animals and they pump the sewage into large sloughs and that can be really dangerous. And like you said, they're concentrated in areas where minority populations live because the land is cheaper. It's cheaper, but they also feel that they will get less pushback because people aren't as informed. So, you know, a more fluent community has lawyers and doctors and all kinds of professional people who are like, oh, no, 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 Mm -hmm. not here, because they know what it means. In a lot of our lower income communities, people aren't as informed and they don't know what a sewage treatment plant or industrial facility may mean to their health. And, you know, we've worked with some local high school, and I remember getting some letters from some of the students where we had, you know, run programs. And one young woman said, I thought that I had to live with mold and water intrusion in my apartment. I just thought that was the way it was, that that's all I could expect. And now I realize that I can advocate against that and that this isn't the normal. And I don't have to live with that. And that was so powerful to me that she actually thought this was just life. Mm-hmm. This is what, you know, I, I can expect. And, and what a thought. How depressing that those kinds of conditions are, are that you think that's just the way it is. That is not the way it is. No. It's not the way it's supposed to be, and it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah, everyone deserves to have a clean clean, healthy environment, to breathe clean air, drink clean water. And we can see around the country, Flint has been the poster child for contaminated water. Yeah. But we saw what happened in Jackson, Mississippi, just a few months ago. I think they're still drinking bottled water. There are at least 10 other cities that the media has identified that have water impacts as bad, if not worse, than Flint, they just haven't come into media attention. Wow. There's a lot that's happening maybe underneath the radar that we don't Absolutely. even know. Yeah. Is a lot of your organization's focus on like education and advocacy so that people can advocate for themselves? And what, what does that look like then? 
So we are community-based and we're membership-based. So we have a thousand members in our community. And of course, Harlem is a very diverse uh, community in terms of income and ethnicity. Mm-hmm. And so you would, some people would say, oh, so that means you've got all the the brownstoners and, you know, all of the more fluent people are coming to your meetings. None of them come. <laughs> None of them. Over 20% of our members live in public housing. Wow. Most of the people who are members are regular, low-middle-income folks, lower-middle-income folks who understand the impacts that they're receiving and don't want to have to put up with it. And when they find that there's an organization that can help them and support them and educate them around these issues, they are more than happy to come out. So we get monthly meetings of about 100, 160 people. That's That's a sizable crowd. That is a sizable crowd. And, you know, these are folks that we... We educate them, and we have a environmental health leadership training program, and so we educate folks on key environmental and climate topics so that they can go talk to their elected official. Not only talk, educate right. their elected official, because, you know... They not, don't know everything. They don't know everything. There are a lot of issues. They don't know everything. So, And they want to hear from people who are voters. Right, in in their area. In their Mm -hmm. area. So that's very powerful to to really educate and organize the people most affected to talk to electeds and policymakers. So we get we help them develop testimony for the city council and the state legislature. We take them on buses to Albany or to Washington DC to advocate with their elected officials. And so, yeah, we're very supportive of the people who are most affected by environmental quality issues. Well, that's good to hear that the people affected by it are moving. You know, sometimes those people don't have a name for what they're experiencing. Yeah. But they know they are experiencing something negative. And when you name it for them and give them all of the background on how this, you know, why this is still happening and that it doesn't have to happen. Mm. It really creates a lot of value and a lot of motivation for those folks to engage. Right. And this can happen on a small scale, too. I know, well, you just gave a presentation here at the College of Public Health, and you talked about gas stoves. Could you describe that situation? Because I had never heard about the gas stove problem until you brought it up an hour ago. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Glad I wasn't boring everybody. No, definitely not. We were all learning something new, I think. So gas stoves emit fine particles and nitrogen dioxides. So they create a lot of indoor air pollution Mm -hmm. that impacts people with respiratory disease and impacts all of us. Right. And so what we are suggesting is to transition those gas stoves from gas to electric induction stoves mm-hmm. that do not emit pollutants. And we have found, we've done this in a home in 20 homes in public housing in the South Bronx mm-hmm. with Latinos and, and black residents, many of whom thought that cooking with gas meant that food tasted better. Uh-huh. And they found out that that was not the case, that food was tasted just as good with an electric stove, that in fact food cooked 
faster with an electric stove. Absolutely. And they were very happy. One of the tenant leaders said that every time with her gas stove, when she walked into the kitchen, she was coughing and she has asthma and didn't really understand why. Mm-hmm. And so we found, and there are numerous studies everyone can look up, the Rocky Mountain Institute and others, Stanford University have done studies, and they are absolutely frightening, mm. the amount of air pollution coming into your home and then finding its way throughout your house right? Um, or your apartment. Especially if you live in an apartment, that space is just smaller. Yeah, or even a small house. Yeah. So you're, fi- you're going to find these um, pollutants in your bedroom. Where you sleep all night Where and breathe in that air. Where you sleep all breathing mm-hmm. in that bad air. So again, transitioning your, your stove, your boiler, these issues are, are really important as we begin to electrify and move away from fossil fuels to renewables. Well, I think that's, that's even just something that people who are listening to this can think about as they have to change appliances or move to a different house. Is looking and it's at also a climate change issue because gas stoves are emitting methane and, 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 sort of, and carbon. Yeah. So it's also, you know, a, a fix for, for climate change. So we've got to reduce those if we're going to meet our goals of, you know, by 2050 of reducing our, our carbon footprint. Yeah. So since you brought up climate change, let's talk a little bit about that. Can you explain, can you just give us some background on climate change just so we're all on the same page when, when we talk about it? So climate change is caused by a natural and man-made actions and climate change is caused by carbon emissions from facilities from stoves and boilers from building heating fuel from numerous sources and those carbon emissions are creating global warming Mm -hmm. so the oceans are warming which means glaciers are uh, are melting which means Water bodies are rising, so there's more flooding. It's also contributing to more extreme weather events. So we're seeing hot days when it's usually cold or cold days when it's usually hot. We're seeing more drought, which affects food production, which might mean that food costs are going to go up because there's a scarcity, because maybe it was too cold in California during the grape or fruit season. So that means if you want to buy those fruits, they're going to be more expensive and they're going to be less of them. Mm -hmm. So drought, uh, excessive rain, all of these extreme weather events are making a huge impact on our cities, on our rural communities. I know here in in Iowa, there have been significant flooding. And even here on this campus, uh, many of the buildings were flooded. Yeah. And ruined. It was like, I saw some pictures recently of that flood. Flooding is definitely something in the Great Plains area that we're familiar with. And I think has probably become a more recent phenomena in the last. And then with flooding, you get mold Mm. in in people's homes or inside buildings. Mold is very hard and expensive to remediate. But if it's left there, it causes significant respiratory harm. Mm. So again, we're going to see more climate migration because of this, we're going to see more people leaving rural areas because it's harder to, to, to raise food and make a living doing that. We're going to see people in 
island states around the world having to evacuate and move because of sea level rise. Mm-hmm. We're going to see drought creating a famine in places like Africa and other countries. And so when we see this migration, which we some people feel so threatened by, we've got to begin to develop policies because in the United States, it's our consumption levels that are helping to create this problem in these underdeveloped countries. And now these people have to leave where they live. And we're all saying, well, why are they coming here? What what is this about? Well, this is about the fact that they can no longer be sustained in the communities they were living in because of climate change and because of our consumption patterns. Climate change can be a controversial issue. So when you address these topics with people who maybe don't believe that it's happening or don't agree with that, how do you address some of this or have a dialogue about it in a way that is, I don't know, convincing, positive? I think it's very hard to talk to climate deniers. Okay. They don't really want to hear it. And it's a better use of our time to educate regular people Mm. about these issues because they are experiencing the impacts and now they will know why. Yeah. And it's better to talk to maybe moderate elected officials in Congress who may not know much about the issue but are getting educated about it to really make a difference. If you're really a climate denier, there's not much I'm going to be able to say uh, to change your mind. So we've really got to deal with the people in the middle or the people who just don't know about it at all, because we can all see there's a problem. Right. I think that's great, tangible advice. When you're looking at climate change policy, what's happening in the U.S. right now? What would you like to see happen in the next couple of decades? Well, we've we certainly have to develop goals. Every city and state needs to develop goals and figure out how they're going to meet them. So some cities are doing more wind and solar mm. in order to, to meet the goals. Some cities are uh, moving further away from burning fossil fuels, which we all have to do if we're going to meet the goals. So every city is going to look at a different combination of recommendations and fixes. And it, it all may be different, but we've got to reduce our, our commitment to fossil fuels and our reliance on fossil fuels if we're going to make a difference. And we also know that without some really important technologies, we may not be able to meet our goals. The problem is, what are those technologies? And so we've got some issues around carbon capture and sequestration that's very controversial, that requires more pipelines to to transmit carbon to, to other locations in the country. Many communities are pushing back against these pipelines. Yeah. We've got at least 50 permits pending in the Gulf Coast, which is already, you know, you've got Cancer Alley in the Gulf Coast. I mean, they're already heavily impacted by, by fossil fuels. And so these new so-called technologies that are basically unproven, because none of them have ever been demonstrated to work at scale, Mm. but now we have billions of dollars going 
to 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 develop activities with industrial facilities who should be going out of business but now they have a new revenue source called carbon capture and they've never done it before so now they're going to get a whole lot of money to try it. I know that the carbon pipeline is something that's been featured in Iowa because it's it's I think it's one of them is slated to go through. Can you explain what the carbon pipeline is and what the goal of it is? The government, the legislature has appropriated billions of dollars for these carbon technologies and for hydrogen hubs. But in order for these technologies to happen, there have to be pipelines that are either going to, once you've sequestered carbon, how do you transfer it? Right. It's got to be transmitted through a pipeline to a place where it's going to be sequestered. Okay. We also have pipelines that are transmitting oil and gas throughout the country. Right. And those are equally as controversial. Yeah. Because we know they could leak. We know pipelines leak methane. We know that if they leak, they can contaminate groundwater. A lot of people are on well water, so that's... A problem, especially in rural areas where especially these pipelines in rural are rural areas. Mm-hmm. So you have a lot of farms and farm owners who are saying no to these pipelines going through their their property. So it is very controversial yeah. at a time when there are billions of dollars and companies are developing proposals to the government to explore these these technologies. I would guess that some of the issue is also that if it's transporting a gas, it may be less likely to see if something was wrong on the pipeline. So if it was leaking, you might not know. Versus oil, you maybe would, or at least sooner. But gas, you might not. Well, so, so we now know because there has been certainly an increase in methane detection, Mm. looking at how the technology to uh, detect methane leaks. And methane leaks are an important contributor to climate change. So there's now more technology to detect those kinds of leaks. But yeah, after you've spent billions on a pipeline and it's leaking, and now it's contaminating groundwater in a a particular community, that's a huge problem. And how do you clean that up? And how do you make those people whole for having pristine water quality? Right. Well, it's good to know that they have technology for it. And, of course, it's newer. Right. It's just just really coming on board that we can begin to really nationally look at where these methane leaks are. The Environmental Defense Fund is putting up a methane satellite that they've been working on for the last few years that will be able to detect methane leaks around the country and the world. Wow. We've talked a lot about, well... A lot of variety of environmental topics. If one of these resonates with an individual, what advice would you give them if they're looking to advocate? What are some practical steps that they could do in order to advocate at the local, state, federal level going forward? If you're living in an urban environment, um, buildings are a big, big issue, a Mm. contributor. Transportation, again, is a big contributor. If the transit is using fossil fuels. So advocating that the buses in your neighborhood are clean buses. Mm -hmm. They're hybrid, they're electric. 
that the school buses are electric. Even though there's money for that, a lot of these school buses are owned by small districts. They're owned by mom and pop operators who may not have the capacities to submit a proposal to get this money. Mm. So again, it's really incumbent on us in our locality to understand where those pressure points are and what needs to be done if we're going to have a just transition to renewables. Solar and wind, we can all advocate for that. Solar tax credits for homeowners, we can all advocate for that with our elected officials. So, and of course there are all things that we can do in our own homes that are good, but they're small. Right. Right? They're small fixes, and we should all be doing them to play our part, but we've got to advocate for the greater good. Right. And we've got to do that with our elected officials who are developing policies to address these issues. Yeah. we got to advocate for the people who maybe can't. And we all work in companies. We all, you're here at a college. Yeah. College students can advocate for what happens at their college. They can advocate for what happens in their dormitory. A lot of colleges for the last 10 or 20 years have been working on food waste. In fact, some colleges have different houses where they compete at how much food waste they reduce. Yeah. So there are things we can do at every level, whether you're a student, if you're in an elementary school, you can advocate for cleaner water in your or water testing in your water fountain. Most of those school water fountains have lead. Ooh. And that's why a lot of them are closed up and kids can't use them because they have lead. You can be advocating for that. You can be advocating for how your build school is heated, advocating for air conditioning, because now we're going to have more extreme heat days. And kids, we all we already know from studies that if kids are too hot or too cold, they cannot learn. Yeah, I can't learn if I'm too hot or too cold. And I can't imagine a kindergartner, you know. Exactly. But, you know, we can also, you know, if, for those of us who are working in business, you're in a meeting talking about a new policy. Look around the room. Is that meeting diverse? Does it have perspectives of people who are going to be affected by this, but who you're not hearing from? Mm-hmm. And you can speak up and say, We don't have the right people in this room to make this decision. What a great way to start a conversation and moving that forward. Exactly. Who is in the room makes a really big difference of how those priorities are going to get set and what those actions will be. Yeah, you can't help people you can't see. How can individuals, regardless of their background, support the cause of environmental justice and contribute to preventing climate change in the future. You've heard of the term NIMBY, not in my backyard. So a lot of communities will, so maybe there's a waste transfer station or there's a landfill. Nobody wants it in their backyard, but where it's going to end up is in a community that is the least powerful. And so we need to be advocating to take our fair share because we want all the benefits. We all want solar credits for homeowners. We all want green infrastructure. We all want solar. 
we want the benefits, but we don't want the burdens. We want some other community to shoulder those burdens. We need to get to a point where there aren't burdens. And when we get to that point, it's because we have policies that are going to switch us to renewables so that we're not using dirty energy. And we need people who are saying, this doesn't need to go anywhere. We don't need to have the same winners and losers. So what do we need to do? How do we need to develop a policy that will be equitable for everybody and take into account those who are the most vulnerable? That's really impactful. Yeah, there's no burden on anybody. That's going to take a while to get there. I'm not saying that's easy. But we've got to start the conversation and we've got to push back on the more powerful interest that this is not okay. Right. Well, and it's like you said earlier, you have to have a goal in order to know where you're going. So if you don't maybe state big goals, you're never going to achieve them. Exactly. Okay, so this is the last question. And we ask this question to everyone that comes on the podcast. And that is, what was one thing that you thought you were right about, but then later found out you were wrong about? And it can be anything in life. It can be small, big, but something that you found out you were later wrong about. I think... I think we often think that government is uncaring and not responsive. And when you begin to work with with government, you understand that the people there are passionate. I mean, if you go to the EPA, oh my God, those people are passionate about having clean environments. I had never met so many people of color scientists. I mean, they're all at EPA. And so many are in all of these government agencies. And these are good people. Yeah. And they just need directors and people at the top who really want progressive policy, who really want to be inclusive of perspectives that are needed to develop equitable policy. Because we've got good people you know, I'm sure a lot of the students you're working, you you go to school with here are going to be those new people in those agencies. And, this, right. and those students really care. They care about our, our, our folks, they care about our communities, and they want to do what's right. Absolutely. And so I think that's one thing working with government, I found that they are very, that many folks there want to be responsive and they are totally committed. And they need our outside help to push and make that that happen. Well, that's really promising. What a positive note to end this on, that we can all prompt some change up into the future. So I'd like to thank you, Peggy, so much for being on the podcast. We are so glad that you were a Hansen Award recipient here at the University of Iowa College of Public Health and that you joined us here today. Well, thank you, and I look forward to using what I've learned from talking to many of the students and faculty here to be a stronger advocate around rural issues as well. That's great. Thank you. That's it for our episode this week. We were honored to have Peggy Shepard from WEACT joining us on the podcast today. I hope that you learned something about environmental justice and what advocacy could look like in your own life. This episode was hosted and written by Lauren Lavin and edited and produced by Lauren Lavin. You can learn more about the University of Iowa College of Public Health on Facebook. Our podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. 
If you enjoyed this episode and would like to help support the podcast, please share it with your colleagues, friends, or anyone interested in public health. Have a suggestion for our team? You can reach us at cph-gradambassador at uiowa.edu. This episode is brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. Until next week, stay healthy, stay curious, and take care.